Hello, and welcome to the Fulcrum Radio Show. I'm your host, Damian Piper. The Fulcrum is the University of Ottawa's legendary English newspaper, produced on the University of Ottawa campus in downtown Ottawa, the capital city of the north on the Great Turtle Island. Today on the show, we have a special installment of Women in Politics, an exclusive interview with Senator Kim Pate, who speaks to her features editor, Amira Benjamin. Kim Pate is an independent senator who uses TikTok and other social media platforms to engage and keep Canadians informed of many issues across the country. She has a background in fighting for some of society's most vulnerable people. And Emma Williams, our science editor, is in conversation with Maddie Venables. Maddie was a part of a research team that won a competition called The Clinic of the Future. Her project is an app-based solution that mirrors dating apps to link patients with doctors. But first, it's time for headlines. Today reading headlines, we have Fulcrum staff writers Shaley Shaw and Desiree Nickfarjim. Welcome to the broadcast. Russia has helped mediate a ceasefire between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Armenia asked Moscow to help defend it after the worst fighting since last year's 44-day war between ethnic Armenian forces and the Azeri army. Both were fighting for control of Nagorno-Karabakh, a disputed region in the mountains. At least 6,500 people were killed during the conflict. In the ceasefire agreement which halted the last conflict, Armenia ceded territory it had controlled for decades. Earlier this week, the two sides accused the other of initiating fighting along the border. Ethnic Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh broke away from Azerbaijan as the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, and the ensuing conflict killed about 30,000 people. The University of Ottawa's Students' Union held its Fall General Assembly virtually on Monday, November 15th. There were a number of technical difficulties throughout the meeting, including multiple participants registered with the same name, Max Zimmerman. The polling system failed to register a large portion of votes, leaving moderators to count votes using the raised hand function. The union presented 14 positions to adopt as a bundle, seven of which were externalized to be individually debated. In the end, UOSU President Tim Gulliver presented a motion to omnibus the remaining externalized positions, which was passed. A motion to push the union to lobby the university to alleviate the pressure of grades was passed, while another motion to expand the eligibility for students running for the executive committee to include full-time students failed. Human rights experts from the United Nations say that Iran's new abortion law is a violation of international law. The new law, called the Youthful Population and Protection of the Family, raises the prospect of the death penalty on anyone seeking an abortion. The law was ratified by Iran's Guardian Council on the 1st of November. Abortion in Iran is now effectively banned, apart from a few exceptions. The law now puts the final decisions on abortion into the hands of a panel consisting of a judge, medical doctor, and forensic doctor. The law also prohibits free distribution of contraceptive goods. The experts say that already, an estimated 300,000 to 600,000 illegal abortions are already performed in Iran each year. Now, without the legal distribution of contraceptives, that number will only increase. A student-led initiative has recently brought back accessible and sustainable menstrual products to campus at the University of Ottawa. 
Founded by five females, the U Ottawa Period Project has partnered with the University of Ottawa to install menstrual product dispensers in heavily trafficked bathrooms across campus. The U of O founding members met in an environmental history class where they were tasked with coming up with a sustainable and innovative solution to a problem on campus. While the response from the U of O community has been overwhelmingly positive, the members are hoping to be able to expand this project in the coming months. Explosions in Uganda's capital city, Kampala, caused chaos and rocked the nation in what police say was a coordinated attack. Three attackers on motorbikes carried out suicide attacks near Parliament and the city's police headquarters. The latest in a string of suicide bombings in the country, including one at a restaurant in October that killed one and injured seven. In the latest attack, carried out within minutes of each other, over 30 people were injured and three were killed, including two policemen. Body parts could be seen in the streets as lawmakers were evacuated. ISIS has claimed responsibility for the blast in a statement on its Telegram channels. Officials have blamed the Allied Democratic Forces, a rebel group originally formed in Uganda, but now based in the District Republic of Congo. The ADF pledged allegiance to the Islamic State in 2019 and increasingly carry out attacks in its name. U of O professor Guy Vincent Jordan interviewed with the Fulcrum to talk about his work tracking cryptocurrency scams using an automated detection system he and his team created. His research is able to point out potential scam Bitcoin addresses before a payment is sent, stopping the crime before it's committed. Jordan recommends users think twice when they come across a proposition that seems too good to be true and suggests people understand how cryptocurrencies work first. Professor Jordan explained that the cyber range, currently being built in the STEM building, will be working on increasing the use of AI to monitor the web and social media platforms which are used to find victims. In Egypt, at least three people are dead and hundreds injured after torrential downfalls of rain, dust storms, and snow hit the southern city of Aswan. The inclement weather roused venomous scorpions and snakes out of their hiding places and into streets and homes. Three people have died from scorpion stings, while at least 450 people have been injured by the stings so far. The Egyptian fat-tailed scorpion is one of the most deadly of its species in the world and can be found across northern Africa. Those who have been stung are being treated in hospitals and medical centers with anti-venom. Health officials have had to call in doctors who were on vacation to help with the influx of patients, while the Aswan governor, Ashram Atia, urged people to stay home, limiting traffic on the highways to prevent accidents due to the limited mobility in the rain. Amira Benjamin is our features editor. She started a series called Women in Politics a few episodes back. She's here with her latest installment. Amira joins me now. Hey, Amira. Hey, Damien. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good, thank you. Who did you interview this week? This week for Women in Politics, I spoke to Senator Kim Pate. Oh, and what did you talk about? This was a career profile, so we discussed her experience in the Senate, the legal work and activism that she does, and how she uses social media as a platform to reach out to younger demographics. Well, that sounds awesome. I can't wait to hear it. Hope you enjoy. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me. Could you please introduce yourself, your name, your position, and how long you've been in this position? Sure. Um, So my name is Kim Tate. I'm uh, an independent senator in the unceded, unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe. 
Uh, I my commission. So when I was named a senator, that was signed uh, five days, five five years and five days ago. And today is actually the fifth anniversary of me being sworn in in the chamber. So um, I've been five years in the Senate. Wow! Happy anniversary. Thank you. So, how did you reach your current position as a senator? And have you always been interested in the legal field and politics? Uh, well, I've been interested in the legal field for a long time. Uh, my parents say that I said that I was going to go to law school sometime around the age of 10, 11, or 12. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly didn't go to law school to do the kind of work I'm doing now or the kind of work I did for the past four years. I went to law school as a working class kid, and so I went to law school, uh, or I thought about going to law school as a way to make money and to support myself and my family. And uh, but once I got there, I became much more interested in some of the social and legal issues that, um, of course, are kind of the things that I've been working on since then. Um, I never intended to be involved in politics. I had been asked by a couple of um, different people to consider running for different parties. At the time, I didn't feel that any of the parties had sufficiently progressive um, ideas or policies around you know, criminal legal issues social justice issues, mm-hmm. economic justice issues, racial issues. So I didn't, uh, I never agreed to that. When um, Prime Minister Trudeau decided to create a more independent process, I was approached by a number of groups who um, wanted to nominate me for the Senate because at the beginning there was a nomination process. Now it's an application process. And while I was, you know, incredibly honored and humbled by the fact that people wanted to do that, I actually didn't uh, initially, I wasn't enthusiastic initially because I, uh, you know, I, I, one, never thought it would happen, and two, wasn't sure, uh, you know, about the process and what it would mean because my experience of the Senate up until then had been uh, appearing before Senate committees as well as obviously House of Commons committees on legislation or policies or studies. And they operated very much in a partisan manner, so I wasn't sure how easy it would be to move from a, a partisan Senate to a nonpartisan Senate. And so, uh, but as I read more and, be, and other people spoke to me more, I became more interested, and and so I agreed to have my name um, put forward. And then um, was no one was more shocked than me when I received the call um, that I was. You know, the prime minister wanted to appoint me, and when he said that he was looking for the kind of um, leadership that my activism had demonstrated in in my work, um, I was even more interested because, if in fact they were interested in this kind of work, I was very excited about the prospect of the Senate. So that's how I came to be here, and um, when I. You know, since I've been here, I've worked on legislation around, um, obviously, criminal law, but also uh, trying to, um, you know, uh, pro- produce legislation that would um, allow judges not to impose mandatory minimum penalties, um, records to allow, or uh, legislation to allow convictions, uh, criminal convictions to expire, um, as well as some around uh, basically not... Uh, being able to having encouraging the government not to deport people who had first come here as immigrants or refugees, mm-hmm. and one of the overarching issues that I came to the Senate wanting to work on that I'm 
uh, doing a lot of work on, especially in the last um, two and a half years, fueled in large part also by the pandemic, is the whole area of guaranteed livable income, free post-secondary education, free health care, pharma care, housing strategies. Basically, all of the um, the ways that we actually create a more substantively equal society, because we know that in countries, and, and in fact, I was just reading this morning a, um, a piece about some of the, the prisons in Finland where they have free post-secondary education, health care, mm-hmm. care, dental care, child care, uh, elder care, and not surprising, they have a much more progressive approach to the criminal legal system, and they have uh, lower crime rates and um, better standard of living for everybody, and not surprisingly, people are happier mm-hmm. and safer. So, how have your general experiences been as a senator? And you did answer this before, but why do you sit independently? Um, so, the reason I sit independently is I um, I feel it's vitally important that you know we actually have the ability to bring the best information we know to every piece of legislation, to every study with which we're engaged, and so. If we're not able, you know, if we were whipped or, uh, you know, votes were uh, preordained, it doesn't allow you the same flexibility and freedom to ensure that you're expressing those views necessarily. Although um, many people will argue even in um, party, uh, you know, in parties, individuals, whether they're members of parliament or senators, have the freedom to do that. I, I think you are certainly more constrained, and so I feel that it's vitally important that to have the best possible legislation and policy, it requires those of us with expertise in particular areas to be able to bring that expertise to bear to give the best advice to the government possible. What have your experiences been like working with the justice system, and how have you witnessed the way women and marginalized groups have been treated? Well, when we look at uh, the prisons in particular, in fact, I'm just getting ready to do uh, a presentation I'll be doing later this week, um, mapping that the more we have tried to tinker with the system, the worse the inequities have become. Mm -hmm. And in large part, that's because we're not tackling head on the really uh, key inequities. And so, you know, one of the things that I was very pleased that all of the senators who participated in the uh, Standing Senate Committee on Human Rights and did the study of the human rights of federally sentenced persons recognized that we need more oversight of corrections, that we need um, we need to look at things like mandatory minimum penalties, and that we need to fundamentally change all of the inequities that give rise to prisons being full of poor people, racialized people, in particular indigenous people, um, people who have past histories of trauma and abuse, particularly, for instance, those who have been in residential schools or subject to state forced removal through child welfare processes, mm-hmm. or people who have um, disabling mental health issues, again, often linked to past trauma. And so the fact that we haven't fundamentally changed you know, who comes into our prison system is a is an ongoing concern. And so it's one of the areas that I feel very strongly and why I'm working on things like guaranteed livable income and some of the other mm-hmm. initiatives to ensure greater e- equality because um, in the process of 
of doing this work, we know that every time we indigenize a courtroom or create a new mental health court, um, unfortunately, it doesn't change the trajectory of who comes into the system, and we still use our criminal, legal, and prison systems as a catch-all for every other system that we have not ensured is working. And if any other system failed as miserably as our criminal, legal, and our penal systems did, they would be, you know, they would be revamped mm-hmm. instantaneously. For instance, if our healthcare system resulted in, you know, suddenly a, a huge spike in death because people weren't getting the treatment they need, there would be investigations that would be changes to the system. And we're much slower to do that in the criminal and the system, in large part because of the judgment that's applied to folks. Similarly, you know, we've seen during the pandemic, even though poor people, uh, people who are, you know, subject to economic disadvantage, racialized people and women in particular have been most um, negatively impacted, mm-hmm. both in health terms and economic terms, terms during the pandemic. Um, they are also the, pe- the people who have refused, received the least in terms of um, financial support. And so we need, really need to be rethinking these issues and ensure that we're showing up the supports for folks so that they can afford to live, um, be housed, be uh, clothed, be educated, and obviously everything from, say, drinking water to appropriate housing uh, to sustainable access to food and all of the services that people, you know, often don't even think about if they're in more privileged positions and have jobs and, mm-hmm. and have a um, middle um, middle class or uh, greater economic advantage. And so we need to be really showing up all of those services and in order to ensure that we create better health outcomes health outcomes are directly impacted also by economic inequality and mm-hmm. racial inequality and gender inequality. So through working with the justice system and observing these policies to improve these things, would you say that some of the work that you do sort of, re- there's kind of like a parallel to the treatment of Cane women in general today? Well, I think, I, I think the work that I've spent my life doing um, is, has, I often describe the first half of my career I spent, uh, or my working, paid working life, as well as unpaid, trying to reform and revise and fix the systems. And then it became clear to me that that was, that was not going to be effective. And what we really need to do is fundamentally impact the inequities in our systems and so that we do not accept. In a country as rich in human and um, natural resources, to have people, as many as three and a half to five million people going without any support during this pandemic is unconscionable, and yet that's happened. And so Mm -hmm. we really have to ensure that we create more equitable approaches for everybody. Um, Have I seen that happen even during this pandemic? Not yet. Am I hopeful that it can happen? I think that many people, when we first started talking about things like guaranteed livable income, thought it sounded like, you know, a way out there idea until we had um, the pandemic hit and suddenly the government was able to very quickly implement the emergency response benefits, the wage subsidies, and we realized that in time of need, certainly those who are previously working and employed 
we're suddenly provided with support. I think we need to take the same approach with all individuals in the country mm-hmm. and engage in what, um, you know, Evelyn, Dr. Evelyn Forget, an economist and Hannah Altser in their new book, Radical Trust, talk about really ensuring that those folks who haven't been supported and assisted also receive that support and that we don't judge people as somehow morally, you know, less deserving of support because they can't work or haven't been able to work or um, have chosen not to work because of their own health issues or their own life circumstances. And we know that when we provide those kinds of support, that there are, um, it does two things. It provides opportunities for people to be able to not work when it's unsafe for them. It allows them to take care of the elderly, their children, those with disabilities when they need to. And it allows them to um, be- become, you know, obtain you know, new skills or education to allow them to have a better job ultimately or better um, benefits or working conditions. Those are all things we should want for everybody in the country, not just those who start out more privileged. Why is it important for you that we advocate for women and marginalized people who may be misrepresented or misjudged by the justice system? Uh, Well, I think it's really important that we recognize that the, the, the more unequal someone is, the more likely it is that they will not have access to a fair and just uh, starting point in their lives. And so it's for those reasons that we see the fastest growing prison population in this country Mm -hmm. is women, in particular racialized women, more particularly Indigenous women, and especially those who have histories of trauma and abuse. Now, that is not who most people think of when they think of who poses the greatest risk to society or public safety. Most people aren't thinking of poor, racialized women with uh, sometimes disabling mental health issues linked to their past trauma. And yet that's who's overwhelmingly, disproportionately likely to be criminalized and imprisoned. So when we know that, it really should uh, light a fire under to really address those inequities so that we don't continue to see individuals who are the most marginalized um, basically being jettisoned into the only system that cannot refuse them, and that's our prison system. So prisons are not treatment centers. Prisons are not, should not be used as um, mm-hmm. substitutes for homeless or, how you know, inadequate housing. They should not be the place that battered women who uh, are fleeing violence end up because they are essentially deputized to protect themselves and then criminalized and imprisoned when they when they actually have to act to do that. And so, it, you know, we know that because of all of those inequities, that's the fastest growing group. And, you know, by proportion, Indigenous people are, men and women and young people are vastly overrepresented in our prison system. It's not because that's who poses the greatest risk to public safety. It's, it's more a function and a direct function of the inequities of our system. And so we need to address those inequities if we actually want to change what happens in our prison system. And we know that the more equal a society is, not only is it a safer society, lower crime rates, there are lower costs for health care, um, people are healthier, people are happier, and those are all things that I, I suspect more than you know, just you and I want for all, all folks in this country. And in fact, it's, it's young um, 
young people who have really encouraged me to be more involved in things like social media and reaching out and in interacting and engaging with young people because you are our future. I mean, I don't mean to sound trite, but you are the leaders who will lead us forward. I mean, mm-hmm. those of us who are in the Senate are certainly of a certain age and um, the, the changes and decisions that are being made now will will affect generations to come. And we should know what people think needs to be happening in the future. And so mm-hmm. for me, it's really important that we, we need to maintain those, not just connections, but, um, you know, have very open and ongoing interaction with, uh, with young people. Mm-hmm. Um, because one of the ways I actually found you in your platform was on social media, TikTok in particular. So um, <laughs> as you said, maybe you can go in depth as to why it's important for you to utilize these platforms and for most politicians really to engage with social media platforms. Well, for me in particular, I realized that many of the issues that um, I was, you know, I was trying to get information out to the public about um, I was often talking to the people who already knew about the issues, and when I would have the opportunity to engage with young people, I found out a bunch of things. One was, you know, some had no idea we even had a Senate in Canada, mm-hmm. and um, some had no idea what our job was. And given that we are supposed to be um, and are responsible to the public, we're public servants, I felt it was really important that uh, and given the issues that I'm working on that I think will impact in hopefully a positive way young people and, and um, you know, folks coming up through the system, uh, through all the systems, education system, healthcare, that I wanted to be able to engage with um, young people. And the fact that one of the roles of senators is to represent not just regional interests, but also the interests of those whose interests might not be Presented by elected politicians because they're not the sort of issues that get votes. And so, given all of that, I thought it was vitally important that I, you know, try and figure out some ways to reach out. And so, it was young people coming through the office as interns who first encouraged me to do podcasts mm-hmm. and, um, and get on Twitter. And then it was my daughter actually who encouraged me to get on TikTok and. You know, my initial response was, I'm not singing and dancing. I didn't even know what TikTok really was. And so, um, and she showed me that at that time, there was only one other politician on TikTok, a Canadian politician, I should say. And that was um, the leader of the NDP. Now there are others on TikTok as well. And and so I said, well, as long as I can um, try and contribute to the substantive discussion around the issues that we're working on, um, we'll do it. And so that's uh, that's how I ended up um, being involved. And so we, you know, sometimes do lives. And uh, also since then, I've uh, linked up with um, Samantha and others who are involved with the On Canada Project. Um, mm-hmm. So amazing, um, you know, young men and women and, um, or, you know, people of, you know, who do or don't identify in certain gendered ways, but basically young people who are incredibly involved in um, political and social and activist life who are teaching me um, many ideas about how to move forward. So I'm, in, you know, very grateful that I'm, I have this opportunity to engage with young people and, and learn so much. And I hope that it's an iterative process in, in the sense that 
I learn and can share some of what I know, and that makes the um, none of us achieves anything alone. So if we're collaborating and building on each other's knowledge and experience, it should make for a much stronger and better, uh, more uh, beneficial policy and legislation in the future. Thank you so much for talking with me. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for the, the honor of inviting me to be on your show. Emma Williams is our science editor. She joins me now. Hey, Emma. Hey, Damien. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. What's new in science this week? So this week, I interviewed Maddie Venables, who, along with her other three teammates, recently won the Clinic of the Future competition hosted by the Faculty of Family Medicine. Oh, cool. I can't wait to hear it. (laughs) Enjoy. Yeah, so I'm Maddie Venables. So I'm the academic research advisor, as well as a senior research associate, uh, part of the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Ottawa. My main goal is to move forward strategic initiatives as part of the department, as well as offer support to faculty and residents to conduct their scholarly or research projects. And can we talk about your app then, the chat app? What what is it? What are its main goals? Who is it for? Yeah. So, uh, so myself and four other colleagues, uh, we got together when we heard about this contest. Uh, we really wanted to address like a grassroots problem, and from our experience and myself interacting uh, with physicians and residents in primary care, it came to our attention that unattached patients is really uh, a big issue in our community. It's very persistent. And there's a lot of community members out there that don't have access to primary care. So, and of course, there's a lot of benefits for having continuity with a a regular primary care provider. So that, you know, earlier detection, um, earlier screening, as well as, you know, just continuity of care. Uh, So we, we attempted to address this issue. And that's where we came up with the Continuity Health Attachment Technology app. So uh, this app, uh, like you've probably heard, it's kind of like a matchmaking uh, process where what we're hoping to do is link primary care providers or their teams who have uh, spots available in their practice to take on more patients to be matched with those uh, community members that have not uh, have access to regular primary care provider. So yeah, so that's in general what we, we wanted to do. What are unattached patients? Yeah. So unattached patients are all those patients that don't have a regular primary care provider. So they're not affiliated to a primary care provider. They're not part of any primary care provider roster. So usually they seek out um, care through either the emergency department or walk-in clinics. And usually that's not very efficient for our healthcare system. So that's why um, it's important for us to try to address that issue and link uh, those patients without a primary care provider to one that, that to one, yeah, in the community. Okay. So let's say like I'm an unattached patient and I'm trying to sign up the app. Would my information like be implemented into like the healthcare system in general, or is, well, my health information just like be stored somewhere on this app? Okay. Does that make sense? So, yeah, well, I'm going to try to address it and let me know if you need me to expand or clarify any of the points. 
So originally, uh, so what we want is folks to like download the app, they can open it, and then they can start their matchmaking process. So usually that would involve a simple onboarding questionnaire that they would fill out, uh, listing some of their social as well as their health needs and preferences. And then based on that, there's an algorithm um, in the background where it would provide some scorecards. So depending on preferences, it could be all as well like language preferences uh, for care services. If there's a specific specialty care that they need, uh, depending on their health needs. Uh, So those scorecards would be presented to the patient through the app. And then they would have a certain amount of time to select based on they can do a review on the internet or, or call folks. And uh, once they select a primary care provider, that would feed back into um, the app and uh, that would uh, initiate the, the scheduling process. So usually we would want like within three, three to four weeks, a, an initial uh, an appointment with the primary care provider of their selection. And we're going to try to capture as well as the preferences of the providers, of course, um, so that it's mutual, mutually beneficial for both parties. So kind of like looking at a consumer-based approach um, to the app. And in terms of health information, so this, what I've described is the first initial phase that we're, we're going to try to design and implement and test in our community. But later on, what we would like to do is have our app communicate with the 10 most commonly used electronic medical records so that those providers that you choose to be associated with can have access readily to your your health information that are recorded in those EMRs, so the electronic medical records, so that at least they can review your patient profile prior to your initial meeting with them. But that would be a second phase. So later on when we're looking, uh, as we know, technology and the exchange of, of uh, health information and being able to have compatibility between all of the systems is quite complex. But uh, we're hopeful that we can get that going. And I know at the end of the competition, you were awarded some prize money. Do you know where that's going to go? Is that going to go towards like app development or research get the app started? Where where do you see yourself using that? Yeah. So uh, what we've done is uh, since winning this contest, our team and I got together and we've met with uh, certain firms and other partners uh, that we can collaborate to start designing uh, the app. So what we're going to be doing now is using those funds uh, to support us to uh, designing uh, an initial wireframe of this app. So the design so that we can potentially in the winter term actually des- uh, develop um, the app for testing purposes. So do you think the app will be, I guess it's kind of far ahead, but do you think the app will be available across multiple devices and do you think the app will be free to use? So that would be our end goal. Uh, of course, like the Department of Family Medicine is a nonprofit organization. We are looking uh, to have this app available to all of all of our community members. So we're trying to respond to being socially accountable with our research and innovative uh, strategies to respond to their needs. And uh, that's all I can say because I have no idea where, <laughs> where we're heading. But um, of course, we're going to try to make it as, as available as possible for everyone and including uh, alternate options for those that don't have access to mobile devices. So we will find uh, alternative solutions for them as well. We're within this model, like we're trying to have uh, primary care teams 
um, accept these patients that are in uh, the matchmaking process through the app. So if they need to have primary care access right now, they could visit those hubs that could temporarily provide primary care access as they're being matched with a primary care provider that is available. And I guess, how are you scheduling? So I know primary care physicians are typically very busy. So how how are you going to get them to want to take on more patients? (laughs) That is an excellent question. And if you have a solution, (laughs) please share. So, you know, it's going to require buy-in. So we're going to have to leverage existing teams. So such as the Ontario Health Teams, existing partnerships, perhaps with the ministry, depending on how broad uh, we're going. Uh, But our our chair of the department, Dr. Claire Liddy, is very supportive and is um, very supportive of this priority of addressing unattached patients in our community. So we're hoping to leverage those partnerships and collaborators for buy-in of primary care providers. And perhaps uh, later on, the ministry can provide more incentives for them to to match and take some of these patients that don't have access to a regular primary care provider. Okay. And when you mean community, do you mean specifically the Ottawa community or do you hope later on to... You know, expand. Oh, we're we're trying to provide a national level solution. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah. So, so what we've done is like when we did our literature search, like the evidence points towards um, benefits from each province, what they've done so far in terms of addressing and matching unattached patients to their doctors. But each province is doing it differently. There's benefits and disadvantages in each of those programs that are in place right now. So what we're trying to do, so it's a st- like centralized waiting list are established in seven of the provinces right now in Canada. So we're going to try to use all of the, the best elements of all of these programs and put it in the app so we can uh, have it like a nationwide app to address this issue, okay. taking the best elements of those uh, programs. Um, what do you, sorry, do you mean, do you mind explaining that again? Do you mean like, so there's like different, sorry, yeah. Can you just re-explain that? Yeah. So uh, the app um, will be using like a, a centralized waiting list system okay. um, or a queue style system um, to match patients to uh, available primary care providers. And centralized waiting list is not a novel idea. And we're not looking into reinventing the wheel. So what we've t- done is taking the best evidence in the literature right now and try to come up with a version 2.0 that would work at a nation level. Okay. And uh, so those are the centralized waiting lists right now that are implemented in certain provinces across Canada. So the idea is that uh, like within your province, of course, you could find a primary care provider, but also if we can apply it or implement it nationwide, then you know, folks moving from province to province wouldn't have those issues of like, how do I transfer my healthcare information, right? How do I find a primary care provider that is available in a region that I'm not sure, I'm new, uh, this is the first time I set foot in this region, like how do I go about getting primary care access? So that would be an app that would be available to them uh, and is not restricted by the boundaries of uh, provinces. How do you see yourself supporting the app app development, all that, you know, throughout the time that it takes to build it. Cause I know that, you know, $3,500 is not enough. <laughs> no, certainly not, but it's a good start. Mm-hmm. So uh, like I said, we've um, had meetings with firms and other partners about like getting this um, off the ground and starting the design of the app. 
So we're the, the four of us are looking to supporting it in terms of uh, the research development behind it, as well as making the right connections so that we can implement and integrate it into our healthcare system effectively. Uh, so that's how we see uh, our involvement with the app. And it's going to be a learning curve for all of us uh, because we haven't uh, developed such an app in the past. So um, I'm looking forward to contribute my expertise, but as well as learn as we're, we're, we're getting it from A to Z. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And I really hope that, uh, you know, all the support goes a long, long way for you and your team. Yeah, me too. And I wish you the best <laughs> of luck. Thank you so much. Here with the latest of what's happening with the GGs is Jasmine McKnight. I'm not even gonna lie, this week felt absolutely tragic. Queens has had the GGs number this year. It started with the women's soccer team who lost to Queens 2-0 in the OUA semifinal a few weeks ago. The loss meant the GGs would not be headed to the national championship tournament, even after a perfect regular season. The women's rugby team, however, did make it to their national championship competition despite losing the RSEQ final to Laval. Not surprisingly, the GGs had strong performances over their quarterfinal and semifinal opponents. What was surprising was that Laval was not joining them in the championship game. Instead, the team took on the Queen's Gales, the host of the tournament. It was a physical and exciting game of rugby. The GGs had things tied up at half, but the Gales came out even harder in the second. The Gales earned gold and the GGs hopped back on the bus, came to Ottawa with silver medals. It does not end there. The football team met with Queen's in the OUA semifinal. And while the effort was there, it was clear that Queens was simply the better team, beating the G's 32-15. to That wraps up fall sports playoffs, and the focus will be on regular season hockey, basketball, and volleyball. Outside of those playoff games, the GG's had some impressive performances. The men's and women's basketball teams were on the road to take on Ontario Tech on the weekend and came home with a clean sweep. This included 100-point games out of both teams. There was plenty of hockey action throughout the week. The women dropped one to Montreal, then hosted Concordia for a 4-1 win. The men also defeated the Stingers 4-2 on home ice. The volleyball team is still on the hunt for their first win, dropping games to Montreal and Sherbrooke, respectively. This coming week, thankfully, Queens is not on the schedule. The hockey teams will be in Ottawa for a couple games against Carleton, On Sunday, McGill will be visiting the women's team for a 2 p.m. puck drop in Minto. Volleyball has a pair of home games on Friday and Sunday. Enjoy your week, and I'll see you soon. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to everyone involved in this week's show. 
straight out of Surrey, we have Shelly Shaw. Oakville Zone, we got Desiree Nekbarjum. The best thing that ever came out of Coburg is Amira Benjamin. Emma Williams is the pride of Oshawa. Jasmine McKnight has a statue in Estevan. Music and sound design by Cameron Rankin. He's riding the wave in Lunenburg. I'm your host, Damian Piper. I'm from a little tiny place called Windsor, Ontario. We're all in Ottawa, except for Cam. See you next week.